what it is that tonight God wants them to do. I do that with confidence in God that whenever His people, whenever any human indeed, comes before Him with any openness at all, the Spirit of God will touch and speak and call for commitment. Your commitment as a Christian might need to take the form that you simply kneel publicly within the fellowship of love here at the front doing business with Him to renew a vow. It may mean that you invest your life as a member of this church with the awareness that God wants no Christian idol. It may be that you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior or if you have that you obey Him by sharing with the world the fact that your life has been changed. Whatever God would have you do, then tonight is your best opportunity to do it. And because God always calls for a public commitment to Himself, because Jesus never called anybody secretly your commitment to people who will pray for you that you do what God wants you to do, laying pride aside and obeying what He says. Jesus, you know our hearts. We stand before you without defense. I pray that you will reveal to us our condition, that you will open our eyes to what we are, but not to despair but for the purpose that seeing ourselves, we may then see you more clearly and give our lives without reservation into your hands. I thank you for what you will do. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, note-takers, you need to. It's going to be brief. It's going to be outlined. It's going to be a very important message. For we deal with a very amazing passage of Scripture from the book of Isaiah that talks about the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ. We talk tonight, and believe it or not, that both His first and His second coming are told in the Old Testament. And this is one of the very few places where the two are seen in a way that they may be distinguished. For the prophets saw a mountain peak. They saw the mountain peak of triumph. They saw the mountain peak of the Messiah. They did not see the cross between. And often as the prophets look, 1 Peter 1 that we've studied tells us that the prophets themselves often didn't fully understand what they were saying. They were speaking under inspiration. And they, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says, had to sometimes seek from God an explanation of what they themselves had prophesied. But in this passage, there is the affirmation of both the first and the second coming of Christ. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord 
and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland or a uh, flowers instead of ashes, beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of weakness or fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. When Jesus stood in the synagogue of His boyhood home of Nazareth, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, He took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and it it ought to underline for all of us the knowledge that Jesus as a man, He was God but He was a man, the knowledge that He cultivated of God's Word. You know how long Isaiah is. It is perhaps the longest book with more words in it than anything in the Bible. And yet Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah. There were no chapters and verses. And the Hebrew reads from the bottom to the top of the page and from right to left, and it's really confusing. Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah, which probably weighed about three pounds, and he unrolled that thing until he got to the specific place. And he began reading in the synagogue at Nazareth what is verse 1 of chapter 61 in our Bibles. And he read verse 1, and then he began to read verse 2, and he said to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he stopped. He didn't even finish the sentence. He did not complete the thought. In homiletics class, they would have marked him down for it, for taking an incomplete text. But there was a reason. Jesus read Isaiah 61 and half of verse 2, and then he said to the crowd at Nazareth, This day... This is fulfilled in your sight. Jesus Christ said that Isaiah 61.1 in the first part of verse 2 pertained to His mission at that time. That was the first coming of Christ. There is a comma after that phrase to proclaim the acceptable or favorable year of the Lord. And... From that comma to the next word, there has been a space of 2,000 years. Always in the prophets, the a year of the Lord's grace is seen as a period when people may come to Him. But then the theme that runs through all of the prophets is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is judgment. The day of the Lord is when God shall exercise and execute judgment on the wicked. And so in Isaiah 61, verse 2, here are the two comings of Christ. He came the first time to bring grace. He shall come the second time to bring judgment. His first coming opened a long period of time when God calls all who will, whosoever will, let him come and take freely of the water of life. And the second coming will begin the day of vengeance called the day of Jehovah the day of the Lord among the prophets. He came to proclaim grace. He shall come again in order to execute judgment. Here is an affirmation just as clearly as it can possibly be in the prophets of the mission of Jesus Christ. The Jews were very 
uh, confused. They could not understand this. Of course, the reason they really couldn't understand it was because as a people and as a practice of religion, the Jewish nation of Jesus' day had gone off with their rules and their forms and their legalism and left God behind. They couldn't understand They saw in the prophets how Messiah was going to be victorious, but how somebody was going to suffer. And they said, well, we've had such a hard time. The sufferers must be us, and Messiah will be the the general that kills all our enemies. But here in Isaiah, just as clearly as could be, and Jesus, with specific, articulate accuracy, read the portion of Isaiah's prophecy that pertained to his first coming and said, Today, this is fulfilled. You've seen it. Here it is. We live in the parenthesis between the first and the second comings. And it appears from every discernible sign and evidence of the Word of God that history is running amok to the inevitable conclusion when God himself will step in and call a halt to all of it. So it behooves us to consider the first and the second comings, the two comings of Christ. I want tonight not to do an exhaustive theological study, but merely to examine the text for our purposes and see the things that it reveals. In verse 1, as there are so many other places in Isaiah, we read of the first coming consistent with other things that have been told about Him. Notice, first of all, here is what I would call designation. Here is designation. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has anointed me. Anointing in Scripture is always a symbol of being commissioned for important duty. This was realized in the baptism of Christ as His anointing for service was sealed when the heavens were torn and the Spirit in the form of a dove descended and sat on Him and the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God designated Him as a servant and as Messiah who was to bring salvation. We see that His designation in verse 1 in the first part of verse 2 involved both proclamation and consolation. The prophets often did not console anybody. They brought a message of judgment and of impending doom. And Jesus Christ certainly faithfully told that God would judge, but there was in all of His teaching and in all of His ministry a note of comfort and a note of consolation and peace and love as He ministered to people around Him. In this passage, we see both proclamation and consolation. For He says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to preach liberty or freedom to prisoners and captives. Not just to proclaim, but also to console. God doesn't offer us band-aids for broken hearts. Rather, God, with surgery which leaves no incision, reaches down and binds the broken heart, making it whole, meeting the needs, whatever they may be. He has a firm hand, but he has a tender heart, as Jesus did during his ministry. The captives, who are they? Who are the prisoners? They are those who are bound in sin. 
And in the Hebrew, which is a very colorful language containing no abstract concepts, everything in the Hebrew is concrete. You can lay your hands on every word in the language and see what it means. It is talking about, well, every once in a while, I see a Western. You know, it's a, it's a, a lost breed anymore. You really got to search to find one. But in all of the good Western, all of them, the good guy ends up in jail. And some nice friend comes and blows the backside of the building off. Now, friends, the next morning, they're not going to lock anybody up in that cell again because it's been opened up. And that's what this word in the Hebrew says. It doesn't say Jesus came and let us loose. It says he came and tore down the jail, folks. He came and eradicated it, delivering us, delivering us irrevocably so that we could never again be bound by sin and held its captive and its slave and its servant. So prison having been opened was opened completely. There is designation. He was designated by God for proclamation and consolation. Then in the first part of verse 2, here is deliverance. He came to proclaim. There was the consolation. Now here is proclamation. The favorable year of the Lord. In the scriptures... When it talks about judgment, it talks about the day of Jehovah, the day of vengeance, the day of judgment. But when it talks about love and grace, it talks about the year of the Lord. And Peter wrote, God is patient and kind, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know Jesus. Now, I want to remind you that the year of the Lord's grace is extended for thousands of years. And it will extend until God in the fullness of time sends Christ to come again. Delay is dangerous. If you need to be saved, you need to do it now. If you need to minister to somebody, you need to do it now. If you need to reach somebody for Christ, you need to do it now. For even the year of the Lord's favor will come to an end. Here is deliverance. The whole time from the first coming of Christ until the rapture of the church is the year of the Lord's favor. And then in the latter part of verse 2 and verse 3, here is the second coming of Christ. Here is the sequence of events as Scripture reveals them to be. There has been, number one, a period of grace during which men touched by the Spirit of God through the Word of God could respond to Christ and be saved. At the end of the day of grace, the year of the Lord's favor, Christ will descend in the clouds, a trumpet will sound, the church will rapture, and we, all of us who know Him, will go to be with Him, and we shall never again be separated from Him. There shall follow on the earth a period of great trouble, like which the Scripture says there has never been, nor could man imagine the horrors of it. And at the end of that period of tribulation, Christ will come with His saints. That is the second coming. He will come with His saints to call a halt to human history and the day of vengeance, the day of Jehovah, the day of judgment will come. That is the sequence of events. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, to confirm this, Peter says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise 
first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In Jude, the little book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, he says that Enoch, a descendant of Adam, prophesied this way, Behold, the Lord comes with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Across the next page in Revelation 1-7, and remember that Revelation, in, a, in common with all Scripture, is, is the Word of God, it is history that God has revealed before it happens. And in particular, the book of Revelation was written by a man who was lifted above the bonds of the flesh, out of the sphere of time, into the realm of eternity, where God revealed to him as though he were seeing a great panoramic motion picture exactly what was going to happen at the end of time. He saw it happen. It is a reality. John was a witness. And he says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth shall wail because of him. Now in this text tonight, here is what this reveals about the second coming. It will be a time, first of all, of revenge. In the latter part of verse 2, he talks of the day of vengeance of the Lord. Scripture affirms in Deuteronomy, which Paul quotes in Romans, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, you know, we use that text and it ministers to our lives as we understand that God doesn't give us any right to strike back at anybody or to strike out or to seek revenge. But as long as you are thinking in those terms that we have no right for vengeance, remember it goes on to say, I will repay, saith the Lord. God will execute judgment. Jesus doesn't love you unless there comes a day when righteousness and wickedness are once and for all and forever separated and the wickedness is shut in a place where it has no access to the righteous. There will be judgment. Here is revenge, God's judgment. But then there will also be comfort for He will come to execute judgment, but at the same time He will comfort those who mourn. Isaiah is saying there will come a day when every tear will be repaid by boundless joy through the presence of the one who comes to judge. You know, sometimes we separate justice and mercy, and that's immoral to do that. It is immoral to separate justice and mercy. Mercy acts in judgment. And folks, with the way the world is today, isn't the mercy that the world is longing for and crying for the coming of absolute justice? Here is revenge. But then notice that's not all. Here is relief in the first part of verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them what? A crown or a, a garland. He will give us beauty for ashes. 
He will give us the oil of healing, for there is joy in the place of mourning. He will give us a garment to wear, for we will be clothed with praise in the place of heaviness. Here is relief. Relief that is a reality within the lives and the hearts even now of all who know Jesus. And then in the latter part of verse 3, here is restoration. Revenge, relief, and restoration. Isaiah develops it. We'll see it in the last sermon in this series in chapter 66 when we talk about the kingdom of Christ. The Bible teaches that God will reclaim for Himself the earth which has been ruined by sin and the system of nature which has been broken and bloodied and beaten and oppressed by man. And there will be restoration. The mantle of praise He will give us, and then they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Isaiah likens us to a tree that is planted, not by your common gardener, but by the hand of God. And I suspect that if God plants, there is nothing that can chop down and tear away. There will be restoration. We will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. But notice, as in all things God does, it is in order that He may be glorified. In order that He may be glorified. Here are the two comings of Christ. Prophecy has two focuses. I mentioned that. I want to read it for you very quickly from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Here is a confirmation of the fact that Isaiah saw the two comings of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ with them them was indicating as he predicted. Now listen, here are the two things that prophecy predicts. It's right here in 1 Peter 1.11. As he predicted, number one, the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. Peter says the theme of all prophecy are the first and the second comings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that are to follow. Between the first and second part of Isaiah 61, 2, there is a parenthesis, a comma. And we live in that parenthesis in anticipation of the day when Christ shall come and time will be no more and the opportunity for those who are lost will be gone, irrevocably, irretrievably gone one mark of the moving of God's Spirit, and I detected it tonight in everyone who spoke, was the fact of urgency. God is in a hurry. History is moving toward a conclusion. There is the favorable year of the Lord. We take for granted His grace, but one day it will all be over and judgment will fall. And unless you, every one of us, is faithful to share the gospel good news of Christ. 
we will have blood on our hands because we did not tell those to whom God sent us. Here are the two comings of Christ. In the glory of what He has done for us, let us not lose sight of the glory that will follow and of the need and the necessity of telling people of Christ. May we pray. Father, I thank You for the truth, the truth of Your Word that is so plain that in Your great love, because of Your great mercy, justice will have to come one day. Father, right now, tonight, give every worshiper a vision of their status, where they are and what they're doing and how they are living. And Father, follow that with a vision of those whom they love without Christ, lost and tormented along with the devil and his demons forever. Father, plant within us a sense of urgency. Rest upon us the sign of your presence so that the fires of life may pale in their power over us. Lord, what you would have us do with our feet on the ground and our eyes wide open, may we intelligently and wholeheartedly give our lives to you tonight. Do what you will. Honor the word. Draw from us true commitment. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand right now with the invitation already explained for you to step to the aisle to do what God wants you to do. We sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Whatever it is that holds you back, it's not important enough. Lay aside whatever it is and do what He wants you to do right now and quickly. Who will be the first?